Hi, welcome to On Investors Minds. I'm Tai Hui, the Chief Market Strategist for Asia Pacific at JP Morgan Asset Management. And thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time to learn about what's on the investors' minds and what you can do about it. Now, in the past few weeks, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the macroeconomic environment, what the Federal Reserve could do, and also the investment implications for fixed income and global equities. In this episode, I'd like to turn our focus to alternative assets. Alternative assets is quite a broad term, covering a range of financial assets from real estates to infrastructure to hedge funds, private equities, and private credits. Each of these assets could play a very different role in a portfolio and asset allocation. For example, infrastructure and real assets can help to generate income and provide protection against high inflation. Hedge funds can make use of their long-short strategies to deliver steady returns when public markets such as equities struggle. And each quarter, we release the Guide to Alternatives, which discuss these assets in detail. So please reach out to your JP Morgan Asset Management representative if you want a copy, or you can visit our website. So to shine a light on this broad range of assets, I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Leung, the head of Alternatives APAC clients uh, with us today. Uh, we'll ask him some questions about Alternatives, and, and I'm sure uh, there'll be plenty of insights from Gary. So Gary, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tai. Very good to see you. Great. Look, let's start with uh, really a brief overview of the performance of Alternative Assets uh, in the recent past, where data is available. I know that for some of the assets, uh, there is a bit of a lag in the data, but what are the numbers telling us and what are some of your, your observations? Thank you, Tai. Um, so, I mean, very fortunately, we've got the pre-queen uh, private capital quarterly index, uh, which roughly tracks the ongoing performance of various alternative asset classes. So we'll probably go and talk about that as of the Q4 uh, 2022. So in terms of private equity, uh, which in uh, you know I I believe that there will be a lot of topics uh, being discussed today. Uh, we've seen activities uh, across PE and uh, venture capital falling as well, um, and uh, so is the some of the valuation as well. Uh, but what we're seeing is a late stage VC is particularly uh, more significant. However, uh, AI. Uh, it's actually bucking the trend as we're seeing in a lot of news today as well, uh, where we're seeing a lot of uh, transactions uh, and some of the inflated valuation as well. Um, the other part would be real estate. Uh, in general, it is flatlining a little bit, so it did not really increase or decrease meaningfully because that we're really seeing some sector rotation within the asset class. For example, within the commercial real estate to retail to residential, there's some nuances uh, we can talk about. Income. Uh, it's still decent in the medium term because a lot of these contracts or rental contracts are being locked down uh, for, for a long term. Um, and um, the other part will be logistics. Um, it is also uh, increasing in traction as well. The third part will be more on the infrastructure uh, and private credit. And what we're seeing in these segments are actually steadily increasing uh, in performance and value. Um, in particular, what we're seeing is that they're bucking the trend in terms of having a low correlation to the market. Um, and um, especially in terms of the, uh, the the growth overall, it's a bit slower than the other asset classes. However, they've been the most steady uh, in the last three years of volatility. And in terms of hot topics, um, there's been a fair bit of discussion on uh, PE and VC in terms of valuation cliff. Um, so as discussed, I mean, this is something that I think on late stage tech, we're seeing uh, this being a bit more prominent. Um, however, at the same time, transactions reduced, particularly because of investors are being more selective. 
they're looking at profitability uh, more than you know their growth at all cost. But at the same time, the sellers are also holding out price. Um, a lot of them are still holding out to the last uh, fundraising round, perhaps in 2018, 19 or whatnot. Um, so therefore, we're seeing transaction volume generally has come down. On the private credit side, especially what we're seeing in a lot of uh, um, issues with some of the banks like SVB, etc. We're seeing uh, banks are, uh, you know, of course, again, like back in um, after 2008, uh, 2008 um, they become more risk averse in terms of lending. Um, um, and also, um, the other, the, on the other hand, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, growth of uh, alternative lenders. So they step in uh, and lend to the um, middle market companies, we call it. Private equity um, investors, of course, I mean, we, we mentioned uh, it's uh, increasingly selective, uh, focusing on more quality deals there. Uh, but one thing we're looking at is actually secondaries as in uh, special situations, especially when we're seeing more dislocation during the, um, the last three years. Um, in particular, last year, actually, uh, we've seen a lot of um, public um, market assets have fallen whereas the alternative assets has held up uh, relatively well. So if you think about institutions as allocation, um, so they have been off balance a little bit, uh, given the valuation drop as well as holding out. So a lot of them will need to sell down uh, some of their alternative asset as well. So we're seeing some of these secondary positions uh, coming up. And then very lastly, Liquidity, uh, as discussed with the banks and all that, um, is also uh, uh, drying up a little bit. So in terms of uh, some corporates and all that, there are idiosyncratic opportunities uh, to lend to them uh, in, a, in a special situation basis. Great. So thanks for that overview. And then let's go through each of these um, individual asset class or individual asset group one by one. Uh, maybe let's start with the real estates. I think that's one of the uh, hot topics that we've seen in, in the recent past. So we've seen varying degree of slowdown in the U.S. housing market, and there are some concerns that higher rates around the world uh, could well put pressure on real estates. Meanwhile, we do see there's a lot of variations within uh, the asset class. For example, based on location, you see residential properties in Miami and Atlanta doing a lot better than San Francisco and Seattle, or based on the type of property. So for example, uh, industrials vacancy rates it's looking much healthier compared to, say, for example, offices. So what do you see right now? Uh, where are the opportunities? And perhaps more importantly, what worries you? Overall, on a mathematical standpoint, we see the return of real estate uh, has been impacted uh, because of the increased leverage costs. Um, and the other part is actually on the demand side, uh, whether corporates, uh, as well as, you know, especially when they're tightening their belts, um, are they able uh, to take increased rents um, in certain parts of the market like commercial real estate? Uh, in terms of demand, um, in the US, we're seeing population moving away uh, from the gateway cities, uh, especially for the residential side. Um, and uh, they're moving towards the, what we call the Sun Belt region. So basically, generally, it's the south side uh, of the US. So basically, from LA to Florida, uh, especially given the warmer temperatures, better tax rates, and potentially bigger space for them as well. Uh, in particular, also uh, with the digital, the rise of digital nomads, uh, they can work not just in office, but in anywhere, uh, proven by, you know, during the COVID period. So I think, I think that is becoming a trend there. On the commercial side, very similar to that, um, given the movement of population and all that. Um, so for corporates, especially for the smaller corporates, it's been quite hard to bring um, their employees back to the office. So uh, corporates, in order to attract 
those employees back to the office, they'll need to upgrade the working environment. So better space, uh, think about you know, cafes, uh, more technology, open areas, better designs, etc., cetera, uh, becoming very essential. Um, and um, the other part will be on the logistics side. So logistics side, obviously, with the uh, rise of e-commerce, especially in the last few years, uh, we've seen continued strong demand. So in particular, e-commerce uh, on the consumer staples and all that has become a bit more prominent. So, so that build-out of logistic network um, uh, is where we see opportunity as well. On the retail side, uh, they had their bad years. Um, so if you think about as the uh, country reopens, uh, uh, reopens uh, we're seeing, uh, especially the high-end retail, uh, has gained the traction back because um, that's the only experience they can really get when they're at the shop. Um, and the other part is shopping malls with more experience-based uh, facilities or elements like gym, uh, restaurants, salons, etc. They're bouncing back uh, particularly quickly. In terms of concerns, um, one big part is uh, the new uh, employers um, uh, in the market, for example, like technology. So we've probably seen you know, a fair bit of layoffs in the past. So with less workers, um, they will need less space. Um, um, so, so that's something that you know, potentially a headwind for this uh, segment. Uh, the other part is, as discussed as well, the corporate affordability. Um, so, you know, they, they are reducing costs um, and reducing spending, whether they can take increased rents or they will continue to um, rent the existing space will be a question. And the last one will be rate, uh, rate movements. So basically, if it goes higher, uh, then it will also impact the return overall. So that's in the US. Um, what about uh, your observations about Europe and closer to home, back to the Asia-Pacific region? So in terms of commercial and offices, uh, in Europe, uh, we're seeing a similar trend. So less space, but better space. Um, the other part will be the regulatory tailwind. So there has been uh, what we call the energy performance of buildings directive. So that um, basically um, requires uh, developers to upgrade the buildings to be more energy efficient or more efficient generally. Um, so in terms of the work uh, from home, work at office uh, dynamics is very much similar uh, with the US. However, in Asia, uh, this is an entirely different story. So here in Asia, um, so in particular during the, cult, you know, the cultural and also the space constraint as well. Uh, so we, we tend to work in office a lot more. Um, so in fact, even during COVID period, uh, you know, a lot of us have been working in the office or, or at least we're doing A team, B team, C teams, etc. Um, so uh, some of our properties actually on the investment team side, uh, we were still able to raise rents uh, during COVID. And the other part, retail, uh, which impacts us quite a lot. So uh, similar to the US as well, uh, we're seeing more of the consumer staple side moving online. But whereas the experience base, um, they, are, they are remaining and in fact getting more traction um, uh, uh, from now. Logistics um, in Asia uh, or even in Europe uh, is probably you know, still you know, developing in particular for Asia. So we're seeing that build-out continues. Um, the other thing to note is that logistics overall, um, it actually offers better yield uh, than offices, in particular the gateway cities. Um, so um, I think together with the tailwind from e-commerce, um, et cetera, uh, we're really seeing that becoming an interesting part of the portfolio. Great. So I think, you know, brief summary on the real estates, there's clearly some uh, bit more of a trouble spots or the need to upgrade 
rather than um, people just completely abandoning the offices. You just need better offices where there is a more attractive place to work or um, you know, more energy efficiency that are required by the authorities. But at the same time, we do see uh, retail, especially those providing experience, uh, are still very popular. And clearly with uh, more online shopping, with more uh, online connectivity, the logistics component of real estate uh, continues to be really critical. So let's move on to private equities. Now we've seen the US public equity market uh, largely driven by the AI theme for much of this year. Uh, technology is even a greater part of the private equity market. So what are the drivers right now in the PE world? So um, it is a tale of many cities. Uh, so maybe I'll talk about the private equity in the VC world. Um, so in the private equity world, um, Today, uh, we're really seeing, you know, deals, uh, you know, in terms of deal making is a lot more selective, uh, looking at profitability a lot more uh, than chasing growth at all cost. Less leverage is being used just because purely the financial returns with leverage is reduced given the rates. Um, the other part is, is dynamics uh, of sellers holding out. So price wise, um, I think for the deals that are being transacted today are still, you know, at, 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 you know not has, has not dramatically, you know, uh, come down yet. Um, in the VC world though, um, despite, you know, transactions and all that have slowed down, uh, the AI side uh, is what's uh, becoming very popular right now. So obviously um, helped by a lot of the uh, new dynamics, uh, you know, large language models, et cetera. So we've seen open AI and all that, uh, which has scaled up really quickly. So um, they're actually, the fastest uh, uh, app uh, to reach 100 million users. Um, this is faster than TikTok. So, um, so if you think about that, deal making in AI is still very prominent. Um, but if we go even earlier stage, seed early stage are still very consistent. Um, so, so therefore, you know what we're really seeing has slowed down. Are actually the late stage tech uh, um, um, that has been very popular in the last few years. Great. So let's move on to private credits. Um, there are some concerns that the U.S. economy could be shifting into a recession later in the year, even though it's a shallow one. Uh, if not, then the Fed could well be uh, keeping rates higher for longer in order to cool inflation, which could also put pressure on some of the companies with weaker balance sheets. So either way, I think you know the corporate sector as a whole uh, is facing some challenges either via weaker growth or higher rates. Uh, how much of this is a concern for private credits, especially when we are starting to see uh, some modest rise in defaults, both in the private credit markets, but to a lesser extent in the uh, public uh, high yield debt market? Perhaps I'll start with a little bit of background. So for private credit, um, when we talked about the direct lending side, there has been a number of these loans are actually from the middle market and are sponsor backed. So what it means is private equity managers will be only the equity piece. Um, and uh, senior in lending with floating rate in terms of structure. However, you know, if you think about if uh, crisis hits and um, corporates will need to repay, etc., or valuation comes down, the PE managers will actually take a hit first before the lenders, given the seniority. Um, but of course, um, this also you know, depends a lot of the professional management uh, of these companies as well. So if you think about today, for some of the existing loans, um, the cash flows, that servicing uh, ability as well as the covenant protection are probably the key metrics to monitor, especially where we have seen a very rapid rate, uh, rate rise in the current cycle. Um, 
The other part will be uh, the default rate overall. We've seen the default rate has gone up to as high as 8.1% in early 2020. But now, I mean, you know, it's gone down all the way down to 1.1% uh, at the end of 2021 and it's creeping back up slowly to over 2% um, currently. So that definitely is something is to, is to monitor. Despite the opportunity as uh, bank retreats, uh, we do need to navigate uh, this space quite carefully. If you think about the dry powder of private credit, it has risen 11 times since 2007. So just back a little bit of context, dry powder means that capital available for deployment. So in fact, these capital deployment do naturally have some competition. So therefore, how do these managers deploy capital? Do they uh, lend at a covenant like loans or are they very careful about the structure to avoid defaults and all that? Uh, will be quite key uh, to, to monitor. The other question also to consider is, uh, are there situations which lender simply restructured, quote unquote, and extended these loans to avoid default? So if you think about, you know, having uh, extend and forget, um, you know, this, this is uh, one of the buzzwords as well, but um, how do these factor um, um, affect returns uh, and maybe, right, a loan uh, repayment down the line as well, or are we just simply kicking the can down the road? So these are the things to, uh, to, to watch. Um, and also these are not shown in the statistics that we just mentioned. In the near term, especially with the liquidity, we believe that uh, special situations prior credit is an interesting theme especially with the banks retreating and also some of the corporates are running into these, uh, I would say, that uh, issues as well. So how do we structure bespoke uh, solutions for them um, and capture this dislocation opportunity will be very important. Okay. So it sounds like both in private equities and private credits, uh, there are, again, very specific opportunities. So in private equities, yes, things have slowed down to some extent, but uh, artificial intelligence is driving a lot of the, the newer deals. And you know, we do think there's a lot of opportunities in not just the next couple of years, but really going forward in changing the way we live. But I think in private credits, again, um, first of all, in terms of the capital structure, it is above the private equity guys. So in a way, they, they do benefit a, a, bit, a bit more. But um, even as the economy moves into slower growth, uh, there are also special situations in private credits where you know, we can still explore as, an, as, an, as a way to generate uh, both income and return. Okay, let's move on to the final piece of the jigsaw, which are, which are hedge funds. Um, now, hedge funds are often seen as providing low correlation uh, with public equities or public markets, and the ability to go long or short um, in the strategies uh, it tends to provide additional stability to overall portfolio when the world or the economy uh, gets into slow growth or even a recession scenario. So what are the keys in picking the right hedge fund at this point? So you think about hedge funds. In general, they go long and short. They're very flexible in strategies and they can also have various structures uh, to invest uh, comparing to a long leaf fund. So in fact, if you think about hedge funds, they do thrive in volatility and dislocations and uh, the ability using all these tools to navigate through the traditional markets, so your equity, fixed income, FX, et cetera, uh, with high flexibility, do allow them to take more advantage uh, uh, better, I would say, in these, in these market conditions. However, hedge funds is not just long and short equity or even credit, but they have a whole range of that. So including equity, credit long short, obviously, relative value, macro, 
quantitative, CTA, etc. So a lot of these different strategies, they do provide different return streams in different market scenarios. So as such, it's actually very important to stay invested in hedge funds and actually invest a broad range of them to complement your existing portfolio. So for example, if you want a specific exposure, but a more flexible exposure, then you can perhaps use a either a, a hedge fund strategy to replace a lonely or whatnot. So that, that, that's one way to do this. However, it is very important as well because market conditions change. So if that return stream in this market condition may not work, that active management will be very important uh, to, 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 to review and also, and also to, to make those switches. Timing though, uh, as discussed a little bit as well, is a bit less important. Um, so, but then it's very important uh, uh, to, to look into the portfolio managers who are working for you because they're doing the allocation for you. And as such, the manager selection is actually most important. So understanding the PM's behavior, the strategy, the investment acumen, and the ability uh, to go through different markets as well uh, is going to be very important to build a successful hedge fund portfolio. Yeah, I think in the guide to alternatives, we do have a couple of charts to show the the variations of performance of different uh, hedge fund managers, or actually for a lot of these uh, alt asset classes, where uh, the range of performance can can be very significant, especially compared to the private market. So again, uh, the picking the right manager is a is a very important part as important as picking the right asset class in, in, in this case. So Gary, thank you so much for your time. And uh, you know, we'd love to have you back uh, on our podcast uh, in the future just to go through some of these in more detail. Uh, so thanks again. So let's summarize some of the key takeaways. Alternative assets are a broad asset class with each asset group serving specific functions in portfolio construction. With the equity markets potentially facing more volatility in the coming months, how these alternative assets fits in to provide income, portfolio stability, and enhanced return should be on top of all investors' minds. Number two, even within one asset group, such as real estates or private credits or equities, there's considerable variations depending on location or sector. For hedge funds, there are various strategies that will fit in to different macroeconomic scenarios. And finally, being able to pick the right manager and the right strategy is crucial. Hopefully, this is where Gary and his team will be able to help our investors. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please share this with your colleagues and friends and also considering subscribing so that you can get regular updates as our new episodes are released. And also, please reach out to your JP Morgan Asset Management representative if you have any questions, suggestions, or want to explore more on any of the investment solutions we discussed in this episode. This content is intended for information only, based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. 
JP Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.